Hello and welcome to this week's episode. This week we're going to be discussing Black Swan, the screenplay written by Mark Heyman, Andres Hines and John McLaughlin. This is a really great screenplay and over the course of this episode we're going to discuss the psychology of the characters and what drives them, differences between the drafts over the development of the story, some of the changes that were made as a result of filming the screenplay, what we personally thought was effective in the screenplay and we also make some comparisons with The Wrestler, the director Darren Aronofsky's previous film which is often considered a companion to Black Swan. Now at the start of this episode, Alan and I will talk a little bit about how we're getting on in our respective experiences of lockdown. Once again, the sound quality of this one is not quite the same as if we'd been able to get together to record, but I think it sounds okay and the content is still engaging and hopefully will give you plenty to think about and spark your ideas for your own writing. In the coming weeks, we're going to hopefully be able to improve this. For now, these episodes are just a little time capsule from the pandemic. Wherever you are, we hope you're doing really well, and without further ado, let's get on to this episode. Hello and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell, and once again I'm joined virtually by Alan Vasquez, my good friend and co-host, who is calling in from his own home as we continue our time in lockdown. Yes. Hi, everybody. And today we're going to be talking about Black Swan. Me and Will decided to commit to a podcast a week because we felt that since we're all been quarantined for about a month now, we realized about early on that we weren't at our creative best in these circumstances just because it's almost like we go to survival mode in the beginning you know we're trying to figure out what we're going to do logistically with you know financial and all these other things that we have to think about which isn't very good for creativity you know you're using your left brain so i think managing those in the beginning was a little bit rocky but will and i uh, decided that reading scripts was probably a good way to keep up with our work and to keep being pushed to do better in our in our screenwriting so um yeah I'm, I'm really glad we've done this actually because i really do feel a little bit more mentally alert in terms of screenwriting in terms of talking about characters and just by reading these really good scripts and then because of reading the good scripts reading better films and all of that stuff so um yeah this has been really great actually it's quite funny because it seems like an age ago that we recorded the last one i know And actually, it really was only about a week and a half ago. Yeah, time has certainly taken on a new rhythm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I I would say things are going pretty well. Again, there was just this initial shock to the system. And of course, the financial and work implications that came along with it. Yeah. And then the next step of readjustment, I think, was to figure out what is the way to maximize my productivity and and use my potential during this time yeah one thing i did this week was uh some story consulting for someone who is writing a historical screenplay so that's something that's helped me keep motivated and using my skills and capacities is to to get in touch with people who potentially we wouldn't be talking this easily as well the fact that we're all interconnected through the online presence i think is a good thing for all of us right now and it's a good time to be reaching out and making sure that we don't get stopped 
and yeah, with the podcast as well, we can keep putting out these episodes. We put out our episodes ad-free at the moment. And I do hope that our listeners really appreciate that, but also the fact that we don't currently make any money off the podcast. This is becoming harder and harder for us right now. You know, the microphone quality situation is going down as a result of this as well. So right. I think setting up a Patreon is going to be a, the next step for us. Yeah. And we'll figure out what kind of content we can bring to the people who support us through Patreon. Mm-hmm to ensure that it's not just a a case of there being different tiers whereby you get all of the episodes ad free anyway on the normal stream. I think if, if you support the show financially, there should be some extra incentives, extra bonuses for people who, who choose to do that. So more news coming shortly, I think as we, we work out what exactly we're going to do to, to get that set up. Yeah. I think that'd be a great way to keep a, you know, all of you guys engaged and participating in, in some way in terms of, you know, the type of scripts that we, we look at. And I guess beyond that also, you know, what specifically to talk about in, you know, in relation to the scripts and, and the films themselves. And one thing I just wanted to add was, uh, you know, it's a great time to to write in, in the sense that, you know, there's tons of films that we can watch. And I think the great thing about writing scripts is that you know, every day you can go and watch a film and learn something. And I think that's been very helpful to me, you know, for this whole quarantine thing. It's just to constantly keep being inspired by watching really good films and then reading really good scripts. But yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to going to that next level and involving more people. Yeah, and I also feel that this is a good time to start exploring the back catalogue of things that we might have missed. That's something that certainly has been the case for me. A month ago or a month and a half ago, I was going to the cinema and I was watching The Invisible Man and, and Emma. The you know Those were the two big releases at the time. And right now there isn't really the same kind of release schedule coming up right. in terms of new films. And that gives us some breathing room to go back. And I know that online there are a million different guides of what to watch during lockdown, themed lists about disaster movies and pandemics and then Mm -hmm. your feel-good movies and what's streaming on this platform, what's streaming on that platform. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't ever say that the 21st Rewrite is creating any kind of like official watch list. I think we explore films that we think have plenty to talk about, a lot of potential, a lot of things to analyze. Yeah. But I think it's a good tie-in as well as just now's the time to explore some of those films that you might have missed in the past and have always said to yourself, oh, I'm going to get around to that eventually. Mm, Yeah. What better time than now? And I've been doing the same this week as well. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So here we go. Black Swan. Black Swan. Black Swan is uh, written by Mark Heyman, which in turn is... He's the third writer, I guess, technically, to come on board because I believe in the beginning it was a story by Andres Hayes and he had a script called The Understudy, which was, I think, written back in like 2000 or something. And Darren Aronofsky, the director, he was attached to the script and nothing came of it until, I think, 2006 or 2008. He got another writer 
I think the producer on The Wrestler to to take a look at the script. That would be John McLaughlin. Right. Yeah. Yes. It's 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 also worth pointing out that Natalie Portman was involved right from the very beginning. That Darren Aronofsky was also keeping her in the loop. Correct. And her involvement with this project is very significant. Yes. Uh, it almost feels like it couldn't have been done without her. Yeah. One thing that was certainly a big part of Black Swan was that originally she would play both the double and the light character and the dark character, yeah, the double, before those characters were eventually split off. And I think we can talk about how that lingering ambiguity about certain points where Mila Kunis's character appears to be unreal or some sort of figment of Nina's imagination. I think that, you know, that understanding that heritage where the script had actually developed from is important in understanding the final result that we get. But yes, it, there is a very long process. There's three main writers involved in it. We've both taken a look at an earlier version of the script, the Mark Heyman version. And also, I've read the shooting script. We've seen the final film. So we're aware of what it ended up being as well. But of course, with 10 years of history, we can't have read every single draft and revision that this went through because they're simply not available for us to read. Yeah. But there's plenty of interviews in which they've talked about different things that occurred at different points in the development. One thing that is really interesting, and we'll probably come back to this as we talk about Black Swan, is that for a while Darren Aronofsky wanted to tell this story as a story that was going to be mixed with elements of the film The Wrestler, and there was going to be a relationship between a wrestler and a ballerina, and showing that stark contrast between the world of high art and the world of low art, and the performance elements and the physical strain that both of these athletic characters have to go through mm. in order to achieve what they achieve within their relative fields, but... Eventually, I think they believed that this was going to be too complicated of a story to tell. It's interesting that we're we're looking at Inyari 2 at the moment as well for one of our upcoming episodes, and I can just see him. He would have connected these two stories, definitely. He would have had a car crash in the middle where, <laughs> where the wrestler met the ballerina. But right. <laughs> I do think ultimately it's better that these two films exist in separate worlds, but there's a lot of parallels to, to draw between them that I think we'll come back to as we discuss the screenplay. Yeah, I mean, they're essentially the same story in a way. Mm -hmm. They mirror each other very strongly. They do. But yeah, it's, it's also interesting to look at the history of the script one that's had a 10-year history. You know, you start with one person and then you take it, mold it a little bit with someone else and then you take it to another person. All the while, you're having conversations with your lead actor about the character and I'm sure that's influencing the notes that go into the script. So you're right about Natalie Portman having, a, I guess, a significant role because I'm sure her feedback was being fed into the script because the script is very much she i think she's in every single scene you know she's literally there the whole way we spend the entire film with her so it's a great example of a very true collaborative process of all these different people coming in and and doing their work and even though darren aronofsky i guess i'm sure he had feedback on the script he's not really 
credited as a writer of the film, but I feel like he did so much writing in terms of how he shot it. You know, he was basically the translator to a lot of these key moments in the script that were then brought to life in very subtle moments. Well, one thing I've heard about Darren Aronofsky as a director is that he he almost sees his production company as being a bit of a development lab and that he knows that there are certain ideas that have been around for a while yeah. and he'll dedicate time to each one as and when it seems like there's momentum moving around that particular project. So you can just kind of see how that translates into something like Black Swan, which is a 10-year development process and writing process as a screenplay, and then the whole thing is shot in less than 40 days. Mm. It's almost remarkable how good of a film it is, considering how little time they had to shoot and the budget limitations that they were facing. And at the same time, you know that that is always at the heart of a very good film, is a very good screenplay and the the time and the care had been in that development process. It had been in that constant rewriting. And I think the initial feedback that they were getting about Black Swan with the earlier drafts of the screenplay was that it was too confusing, that it wasn't really clear what was going on, that this ballerina is haunted by a double, but it's never really clear if she's a real person or not a real person. And what probably broke the story and allowed it to take place in a world that we as an audience can relate to is the separating out the character of Lily, as portrayed by uh, Mila Kunis, into a very real person that all of the other characters can see and can interact with. So we know she's real. And then there's also the questions about the psychological state of Nina throughout the course of the story. Yeah, well, another interesting thing is the draft that I read was a draft from March 2009, which is still about almost a year before production started. So it's an earlier draft. And actually, the character of Lily was in the script, but she didn't come into the script until about maybe 30 pages in or 40 pages in. And this double was in that script but was separate from Lily. So I think what the next step from the draft that I read was to combine those two characters. And like you said, kind of create a more uh, concrete character in that of Lily. But what I really think is extraordinary is the fact that it feels like a very, it's a character-centered screenplay. And I feel like every scene is a big leap in terms of letting the audience know who this character is. And when you watch the film, it feels so simple in its structure in a way that, you know, it's amazing that so many people had all these intricacies in the script, but that just shows, you know, kind of like what good screenwriting does is once you start picking out all the fat and all the things that are necessary, and then you get to the core of it. The way I saw it was this character having a mental breakdown. Um, in the script that I read, it is about mental breakdown as well, but I think it seems to be very focused on the world of the ballerinas and the world of the backstabbing of, you know, Beth, who is played by Winona Ryder, has a way bigger part in the script that I read. You know, she, her and Nina are like really good friends in the script and it's a deterioration of their friendship and it, and it focuses a lot on that and a lot of on how the new girl comes in and she takes on the 
the stardom and like, you know, that whole cycle. So I felt the script evolved from those points. And even though the film does have some of that, it, 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 you can tell like it was being refined so that, you know, at the center of it is really this, this woman who is having a mental breakdown. You know, she's striving for perfection and she's pushing herself and pushing herself until pretty much the breaking point. But there's a lot of stuff to talk about. I don't think it's just about that, which is part of the reason why I, I love it so much. There's a lot of things that we can discuss because it's a very visually telling film in terms of metaphors, in terms of, you know, symbolism and all that stuff. Uh, but all the stuff is also in the script. So we can talk about how, you know, they incorporate that in script format, you know, telling the story through visuals. Yeah, let's start with maybe a character description of Nina and how this screenplay is positing itself. For me, it's a screenplay that gets very much under the skin of, for lack of a better word for this, I, I would call it female psychology. There's a lot of reference to Nina being the center of attention, to striving for physical perfection, beauty, there's all the sexual harassment dynamics going on, as well as the backstabbing, the competition amongst all of these different ballerinas who are kind of fighting over the same positions. And the two-facedness, I suppose, is one way of looking at it. The, the fact that ultimately there isn't much of a bond between a lot of these female characters because they're all in competition over the same thing. Right. And then you can compare that, I think, to... The Wrestler, which looks at it through a lens of masculine psychology. Mickey Rourke in that film doesn't care what he looks like. Right. He, the guy looks like pure Botox, and it's just this... <laughs> <laughs> I know. But it's, it's so this weird. whole yeah. opposite side of the coin, isn't it? It's this very aggressive film. It's a very punishing film. And they all get along. They all get along, the guys. Even though they're fighting on stage, they, they get along backstage. There's a very different sense of camaraderie behind the scenes. Right. Yeah, compared to this performance, which is so violent on stage. And then you compare that to the, the ballerinas who are so poised and perfect and working in unison on the stage. But behind the scenes, it's the exact opposite. So right. I think these two films do take those opposite side of the coin approach to each other and we'll, we'll see this kind of reflected from side to side the way i like to see this story it's just a, a lens of interpretation but i do think it is the tale of nina coming into her womanhood it is her evolving from a state of arrested development into her full potential as a as a human being as an adult and that the extent to which any of the particular writers involved in this screenplay specifically designed it as a psychological tale is unknowable for us. But I think that is quite clear when you read it that there's at least a basic understanding of um, common psychological tropes because there's this overbearing mother that is constantly trying to protect her and keep her safe but also keep her in this world of being a, a child for much longer yeah. and then there's the real world out there which is her her career which is putting her under more and more pressure to kind of grow up and not on her own terms a lot of the time 
And then there's all of the underlying kind of sexual elements that go through yeah. the film. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's exactly the two lenses in which I, I see, which is, you know, mental breakdown. But uh, with all the visual imagery, too, of how she becomes woman, you know, at the end you have the blood and, and it's all very symbolic as to that is what's happening. She's coming into her sexual awakening. You know, we go through that journey with her, too. The way that Natalie Portman portrays her when she's talking to her mom, it's like it's almost like she's a little girl. The way she answers, the way she acts around her mom, I think showing us how she acts like that in the beginning of the film kind of sets the stage, I think, uh, subconsciously as to, you know, this woman who's 26, but she's acting like she's 15 and how that translates into her work and her peers. You know, she's got this sort of you mentioned Arrested Development. I, I think, you know, she is probably the least emotionally developed in the in the whole class in a way because, you know, they've all sort of become women, you know, and she's sort of like on the side there. And I think she's constantly seeing herself. I think she comes into her own empowerment as well. I think it's, 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 it's mirrored with each other. I think it's about her becoming a woman, but at the end also becoming empowered, but also having a mental breakdown. You know, I think... There's all these things kind of mixed into one because, you know, we meet her. She's very insecure. She's constantly seeing herself through the lens of other people. You know, we see a lot of those little moments where she's constantly worried about what the other person might be saying about her. And so it's almost like the whole film is a journey of her stripping away her psychology of all those lenses that she has in her head, which is partly why she has that mental breakdown because, you know, she's constantly having other people in her head. We start with her on stage and she's in a dream, but she's on stage and she's performing. And I think that was a, a really cool touch to start the film, you know, because you have this very visual metaphor before we start her day when she wakes up. We always need to establish what the character's want is very quickly and effectively in a screenplay. Mm -hmm. And to show her dream is to be on stage in that central role it is swan lake we've got this bar to measure the rest of the film by right away following that initial sequence one thing that is so powerful about black swan as well is the fact that by setting it during a performance of swan lake they therefore have access to all of this absolutely beautiful music mm. composed by Tchaikovsky. And that, I do think, gives the film such a power overall mm -hmm. because they're able to access a, a, a type of music which is art in itself and then accompany it with their own interpretations of the performance. Yeah. Also, understanding the story of Swan Lake, I think, is of some importance in order to understand Black Swan because there is a similar symbolism in Swan Lake. It's almost Disney, I suppose, the one way to describe it. You know, this is going back into the world of, of parables and, and fairy tales. Right. It's uh, an evil sorcerer has cursed all of these beautiful maidens and they appear as swans during the day and at night they turn back into women. And, of course, this prince, Siegfried, falls in love with the swan queen, the white swan, but the sorcerer comes to trick him and sends a black swan instead to try and win him over. At the end of Swan Lake, they 
commit suicide, Siegfried and the White Swan, and that liberates them, that allows them to ascend to heaven, to be together. They're using these motifs, these metaphors that have appeared in that work and then brought it into the 21st century, I think, in, in a way that has been possible since Freud and Jung and this this study of the subconscious, of the dark forces that exist in within the human mind, with compartments of the same person. And then these earlier drafts that we've heard about of Black Swan, there was too much of a mix that by just having this mysterious double following her around all the time, it lost some of the actual potency, which is to ground this in the real world and have a character like Lily, who is the opposite of her in the real world as well, just to show how different she is, Nina is from Lily. Yes, going back to the want, I think this is a prime example of a character who is very single-minded in their journey in the film. We, like you said, we know exactly what she wants. We know exactly how badly she wants by the length she's willing to push herself to do it. We see that she's not a very secure person. She's not a very comfortable person around people. She doesn't have a lot of friendships in this place. This is not really exactly a fun thing, you know what I mean? Like, she seems to be suffering quite a bit. But she has that desire to be the Swan Queen. Like, that is the ultimate desire. And by having... One thing that you mentioned that was interesting was, you know, the, the whole story of that ballet and the fact that they do get to use those characters and, and those images and that music, which worked well in their favor. I think using the analogy of the Black Swan and the White Swan with her specifically is great as a character tool to show sort of what she naturally embodies and sort of using the black swan as the goal of the character and having thomas who is the um the director i guess we, we would call him mm-hmm. played by vincent cassell who is sort of you know the sort of mentor and kind of in another sort of whiplash situation you know where he is yeah an abusive mentor he's, he's yeah. An, yeah he's very emotionally abusive and uh, manipulative in the script that I read, his name wasn't Thomas. His name was Koroyevna, which I don't know if that's Russian. So I think initially the, the thought was it was going to be a Russian director. So you have the goal and you have where she is. And you start to see the the journey as like little by little she starts getting closer and closer to her, to her black swan self. Yeah, I think you touched on to something just there, which is very, very important, is that the perfection she's striving for and her natural inclination as a character is incomplete she does have these natural talents let's say like her she's obviously one of the best dancers in the company but she's incomplete and this is something that is very clearly set up in those first few scenes let's say the first 10 to 20 pages of the screenplay there's constant reference to the fact that she cannot embody the black swan. She is perfect for the role because she is the white swan, but there's something lacking in her, this 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 ability to be free, to be comfortable in her own skin, to feel confident and sexual and all of these things. That's all missing. And these are the qualities that Lily naturally embodies. 
and makes her a perfect black swan. She wouldn't be the perfect white swan, but as a result, the company and Thomas as the director is having to decide he needs one person who can embody both of these things. Yeah. And that Nina is lacking that black swan mentality. And some of it obviously comes across as inappropriate, creepy, all of that stuff, the way he instructs, but there is some substance behind what he's saying. And when he introduces himself to us as an audience and he's he's giving his speech in front of the, the ballet company, he says, they're going to do Swan Lake, but they're going to strip it down, make it visceral and real. And he says, but which of you can embody both swans, the white and the black? The screenplay kind of sets out that question early on that there's something more for her to strive for than simply being chosen to be the leading role, that she's going to have to actually change so much in order to actually be able to give the perfect performance of this part. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Like, you have a great way of setting up the stakes really, really high because the film could have been about her whole journey to getting that part and proving herself to get the part. And I think that would have been a much more traditional film. Mm -hmm. But instead, she gets a part very early on. But the question is, because now as the audience, we know that she doesn't have it all figured out, you know? So now it's like, well, the stakes are not higher because she actually has the part and she has to really prove it, that she can do all these things. So I think that sets up a really good challenge for our lead character in terms of what comes on later on and sort of these pressures that start kind of affecting with her emotionally and mentally. I think one of the ways that is shown that she isn't the black swan is very much the way you have these small moments that she has with all these characters, uh, with Beth, with Thomas, with her mom. You know, she's just never really speaking exactly what's on her mind. She has very little to say in the beginning of the film. She's constantly reading people. She's constantly sort of mentally reacting. And I feel like, you know, the, the monster that kind of keeps um, chasing after her on stage as part of the play. Mm -hmm. I guess to me that means, you know, it's this, it's that dark side to her, but it's just really that side of her that's just dying to express that doesn't, you know. And so you have all these wonderful little moments that are just very painful in a way because you see that she just doesn't, she can't relax. Like she's just constantly on edge every single scene. And you just read it on her face, you know, there's just constant terror in this little girl, you know, kind of vibe that she has going on in the beginning. So I think it's great the way it's written, the way probably having, like you said, Natalie Portman be a, a constant companion in, in writing the script, I think probably helped in those moments where all it takes is just a little bit of a interaction between two characters. I love the scene where they're they're rehearsing, so it's her and... I think the, the dancer's name is David and they're practicing the, the black swan routine and uh, Thomas just kind of like embarrasses her in front of him by asking him if he would, you know, how, if he would fuck her, which mm -hmm. is, I mean, what a terrible thing to do to someone, you know, like, and then he pretty much says no. So it, it's, it's, um, that, that's a great way of showing sort of the, the emotional impact it's having on her. And also showing us, the audience, how hard it is for her to, to be that. It is quite noticeable as well that it was released in 2010. Thomas did not survive Me Too. 
Oh. <laughs> in the world that this film takes place, Nina's mother knows. She she mentions it. She says, oh, he's got a reputation. And that's the way those things were treated at that time. And now it's it's like, there's no way that guy survived Me Too. He is constantly harassing all of the different women who are under his care. But there's this understanding that I suppose his methods are also getting results on stage and that's why it's it's going unquestioned i think and it's it's quite painful to watch her the way she'll bend to his will i suppose is is a way to put it like it it's quite tough to watch some of those scenes yeah and it's 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 worse than the script that i read in the script that i read they actually do have sex and it's it's it starts off as very forceful and she does eventually give in so i think they kind of back away from that extreme, which I think is good because uh, it plays well into her sexual awakening coming much later instead of it that way. I also do like how they introduced the rash from the very beginning. You know, it starts off as this tiny little thing that she has to deal with. And then as the movie progresses, it becomes increasingly revealing to how she's feeling inside until, you know, it reaches its, its climax at the end of the film. I think that's another good sort of character trait. But adding little things for a character that keeps building and building is a great way to create a map in the audience's mind of who this character is. You know, you're kind of like piecing it for them subconsciously. I I also like the fact that Lily, as the counterpart to Nina, Mm -hmm. has these wings tattooed on her back. Yeah. It's almost the opposite of it's this confident wearing of this symbol mm-hmm. on her own skin. And the Nina's version is, is one which is very much unconscious. It's this, this constant urge to scratch and to, to start tearing away at her skin. There is something very wrong about what's happening to her. That it might just be the whole setup at the ballet company itself. Or it might go beyond that. It might be stuff that's happening with her mother. It might be stuff that Thomas or other men in uh, higher positions have been putting her through, subjugating her through for her entire life as well. This madness or paranoia or hallucination could be tied up with some sort of history of abuse as well. I think the screenplay is wise to not attribute it to any one particular factor but to leave it to our imagination and simply watch what unfolds. Yeah, and then you could always just as an audience project your own meaning of it. I think you're right, by leaving it kind of open like that, then anyone can add their their sort of two cents. Like for me, I think I noticed that the only person that notices that she has those rashes is her mother. And Mm -hmm. she's the one that kind of equates it with something bad. You know, she gets upset that she still has them or that she's been picking at them. So in a way, um, I kind of identify them as something to do with, with her mother. And I think one of the segues in the first act into something else is she starts kind of fighting her mother, or she starts sort of rebelling against her little by little, which I think sets her up to finally be fed up of that when Lily enters a picture and starts offering, you know, just a chance to go out and show a different side of herself. Uh, and at this point, you know, she's kind of already done with her mom. So it is like she's going through her teenage rebel phase. So it's like we're seeing her grow up in this entire film, you know, and that would be like that phase that she starts going in, which is the next part of the script. 
One thing that's underlying this, and again, we can't know the extent to which everyone who worked on this film or were involved in the screenplay is aware of this consciously, but psychologists have pointed out how modern Western culture, let's say, so to include America in in that kind of sphere, there's a lack of traditional adulthood ritual. There's no moment you can think of. um, Probably the most familiar one to an American audience would be in the Jewish culture, the bar mitzvah or the bat mitzvah, that there is a specific celebration to mark someone's transition from childhood to adulthood. And the fact that this is missing in our culture has always been something that psychologists have gone back to, people who are philosophers and people who think about these concepts and their implications for society. It means you don't know at what point in someone's life it will happen, but it will happen in a way that's not kind of prescribed by the community following a specific pattern. And it feels like Black Swan tells that kind of tale as well. It's telling how she got through this ritual death of the child inside her and the birth of the adult inside her. If you look at the ending of this film and how she's bleeding and everything like that, and there's this sense that she's kind of dying and being reborn at the same time. Like, I'm not sure if the screenwriters intended for this specifically, but it certainly feels like it's at least an unconscious manifestation of this kind of idea is coming out throughout the entire screenplay. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it definitely feels like it was very intentional. The idea that she killed herself, the idea of becoming into womanhood, you know, like I said, that the blood which represents being birthed into womanhood, you know, like that's when a woman gets her, her menstrual cycle, like, you know, they've cross that threshold in a way so i guess blood and that symbol actually darren aronofsky wanted to put the blood on her groin and natalie portman didn't want that and they changed it but he he had intended for that symbolism he wanted the blood to be to be seeping out from there that's interesting i wonder why she didn't want that i don't know i mean i think yeah i think she was concerned about the um yeah, just the visual image of herself in, in that and how that image could be used. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it was daring, let's say, and it makes sense that it was dialed back at the last minute. Yeah. But I think the purer version of this film would have had that symbolism. Yeah. Again, like sexuality being a, a theme in, in, in the film, one of the first scenes after she gets the part is when she gets the homework from Tamal about... Uh, going back to her place and, and touching herself. You know, it's almost like that is the part that she, she needs to work on. And it's it's so funny because we see her <laughs> attempt that in the film in a very uh, sort of graphic manner. Like, I, I, it must have been very important, I feel, for for the character, for for Natalie Corman to, to deliver the, the performance that she did. It really feels like this is a... A moment of growth for the character. I think we needed to see that because you could tell it's something that she's deprived of. She obviously doesn't partake of that often. She doesn't really explore herself sexually that often. You know, she's single-minded. And she can't. Yeah. yeah. She's single-minded on She that. doesn't get the privacy. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, you have her mom who's sort of been controlling her this whole time. And I think 
those rashes that we see in the beginning and then by the end those rashes turn into like the wings and, and it's almost like her wings are trying to like burst out but i kind of see it as like when she finally gets the wings is when she finally breaks that cord with her mother as well which she sees in the in the audience when all of this is happening too i think there are probably some other episodes in which we've talked about just sex scenes and how they're included in a screenplay and the whole point of a sex scene needs to be that it tells us something about the character. But I think Black Swan is a very, very good example of showing all kinds of aspects of a character's sexuality, always on point, always describing and giving you a bar to measure their development as a character throughout the course of the screenplay. Yes, because she stops this whole, um, she stops touching herself when she looks over and she sees her mom sitting on that chair across from her. So it's that feeling of like her mom getting in the way of this. And then a few scenes later when she's out with Lily and they go back, seemingly back with Lily into her apartment and they have sex with each other. You know, that's another symbolism of her actually finally completing that sexual act in a way, but it, it's her having sex with herself. You know, she finally, finally does it. And I think that's like the, takes her to the next step in, in her journey. She wants to be like Lily. I think that's why she's threatened because she is everything that she's not naturally. So of course there's a part of her that's just so attracted to her anyways. I think inside of her, there's a person that wants to have friends, that wants to have those connections, but it's just, uh, this constant need to be perfect, I feel like, kind of has her closed off to having authentic connections with anybody. Yeah, there's so much more shame and judgment and all of these things that they don't need to be over-explained. The screenplay is careful to not over-explain any of this stuff and just to sit back and let us watch. But I think it makes perfect sense when we see it. And uh, one of the other things that I think is worth noting at this point as well, is just how the screenplay is written. It's quite literary, I think. It's a very well-written document. There's points where you can really hear the voices of the authors coming through and their appreciation and care for the subject matter. So just one quote I can give as, as an example of that is when they're describing her audition for The White Swan, it says... Although her movement is incredibly precise, there's a definite vulnerability, exactly as the white swan should be, fear tinged with melancholy. You know, there, there's definitely something poetic about the way that she's described at various points in the screenplay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It feels like a confidence screenplay in the, in the way that it just knows who these characters are. I think Nina is a very, very well-realized uh, character. And a lot of the dialogue, I think, one of the interesting things is the draft that I read has scenes work differently you know the scene where she goes out with lily and they go to the club and they meet those two guys in the draft that i read they they go to a burger joint first and they're eating burgers and they're talking about burgers and they're kind of connecting that way but they took kind of the elements of that and they put it into the scene where she's with the two guys and whatnot so you know it's it's you start seeing kind of how you're looking for certain beats and I think when you're writing, you're, you're almost like overwriting because you want to, there's a part of you that just wants to make sure that the message gets across 
that you know you get all these thoughts out of your head so like this scene is about this so this is kind of like you know this needs to happen in this scene and just in case they didn't get it in this scene let me put it a little bit more in this scene as well it's it's great to see this script because now i see like oh they realized that they didn't really necessarily need that scene for that beat because they could just take a line from that scene and put it in this scene and then you have that beat that you need so it's really cutting all those things of uh, not being afraid i think of losing losing stuff that seems important and especially if, it, if you're gonna not make your film redundant if that makes sense the, there's a lot of material here and in order to try and break it down and and recount everything that we've read i think it's a complicated screenplay to do that because so much happens and yet certainly darren aronofsky's intention with this is to create I think what he calls documentary verite, it's almost true. It's something you're watching and it's meant to come across as as if you are following this character around. And there was some concern in, in filming in this style because they were concerned, well, what if the audience just thinks, why isn't she turning to the cameraman and screaming instead of just screaming? It feels so much like it's a documentary, but at the same time, it's more... I think we as an audience pick up intuitively that our characters cannot see us and cannot respond to us. There is no camera team around them that they are by themselves in that kind of other world that happens up on the screen. But so much happens in this screenplay in terms of all of these little details that are written in. I don't think it was necessary to repeat anything. It was better to have these short scenes that introduced okay, this is her approach to her practice when she breaks her toe and she's trying to do the 32 spins. We just need one of those scenes to, to understand that element of the character and we wouldn't need that to be repeated, repeated, repeated. That is another parallel with The Wrestler. There is some, some moments in which the film steps away from the story that's on the page and simply watches the camera it's fly on the wall and the camera is simply watching her put on her shoes the way she prepares the, the stretches she does the the clothing and and how she prepares in backstage for example stuff like that and and those parallels are in the wrestler that we see that with um with the ram him wrapping his his bandages around his wrists and getting prepared for mm -hmm. for each of his fights him injecting himself with steroids or seeing him in the shower after his surgery those kind of things there's just these moments that are not really included in the screenplay but that adds to that documentary feel is to have this kind of b-roll almost of just these are the little details that the camera finds interesting when you're watching these scenes yeah no i love it it's like you're you're building a character you know in these little moments you're putting together a puzzle specifically for, you know, the wrestler in, in this film. It's almost like you have these soldiers getting ready for battle, you know, and you're seeing them put on their, their armor. And I think with her, you know, like you said, those little moments are showing the dedication that she has to her craft. And we never get back those montages of her getting ready or doing any other stuff. You know, it's more of like... Um, setting up what she's going through and then just letting those other scenes breathe in terms of how she's emotionally executing 
those uh, particular moments. And I think, I don't know much about the, the ballet world or anything like that, but it's just so curious to me that, I don't know if like not eating well has maybe something to do with how their mental health is because they're unbelievably skinny and they have to be. It's not because they have an issue or they have a, you know, a diet issue. It's like they just have to because they have to perform these very precise moves. And that's why it's a high art, you know, like obviously not anyone can do that. You have to be years and years perfecting that craft. But you, you show the sacrifices that you're willing to make, you know, to your body, to your mental. I think it's just fascinating to explore the world of just extreme dedication to a craft. You know, the wrestler is the same thing. You know, we see all the things that he had to give up to do that. Not just the, the family stuff, but you also see all the cuts on his body. And it's very similar to, to Nina's character in this film and showing sort of their battle scars and what they're willing to to do, to just go after it, you know, it's just like, it's what they're born to do and it's what they want to do. Yeah, the endurance aspect of it is is very interesting and then you have the two parallels. It's funny that the Ram is kind of more famous in a way, even though a lot of the film is about him kind of dealing with middle age and being forgotten and being replaced. He's still more famous, like people recognize him and even if it's just a small community of wrestling fans, they still know who he is. Whereas when Nina goes out with Lily, they tell these two guys mm. that they're in the ballet. <laughs> they don't give a shit. <laughs> the, and this is, this, this is the natural yeah. reaction of most people. No one goes to the ballet. This is the thing that is so kind of ironic at the heart of, of so, um, Black Swan. So I just went to my first ballet back in November to go see the Nutcracker. Mm-hmm. Another Tchaikovsky, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's a, it's it was beautiful. It was it was I always thought it'd be boring, like, you know, just uh I guess it comes with age as well. That you start appreciating the moves and the, the music and the choreography and like the colors and all that stuff and, and because you understand the the dedication that it takes to to pull off something like that, you know. And so I love films that uh explore all of that. But the the, the dark irony is that Nina and all of the other ballerinas are competing over this place, this role, mm -hmm. and yet it doesn't have the real-world implications that you might think that, <laughs> that it might have, considering the amount of competition, the fact that she gets the part and then someone's written whore on her mirror. Oh, yeah. To them, it feels so significant mm -hmm. and important. And then I like that there's just that moment where they meet people outside the ballet world, just because Nina doesn't really interact with anyone outside the ballet world, aside from in that one scene. Yeah. And it's just this revelation that, oh, actually, this doesn't have the same importance in most people's lives that it does in her life. And yet she still is persevering. She's still treating it like it is the most significant thing on the planet. And that is why we connect with her character i think is just to see anyone have that kind of level of dedication yeah i mean that that's the um that's how you know you did a good job with your script you know it's the same thing um if you get an audience to care about whether a ballerina is gonna do well on her first performance opening night then you've done a great job because you know obviously that's something that you wouldn't care 
a normal life, but you know, you invest in in the the desire of a character, and then that's kind of what's going to drive you through the whole story. There's something that Leroy says as well, and although Leroy is a very problematic character, I do think it's a very important line of dialogue from him. He says, dance is not immortalized like music, poetry, or art. It lives for now, for this moment only, and this is your moment. And there's this understanding for us as an audience that this is something a little bit different to what we're accustomed to. We are more accustomed to fame in terms of uh, filmmaking, in terms of music, in terms of writing, things that can be recorded and transferred time and time again. But within this world, it's just the here and now is the most important thing. And we see that that has catastrophic psychological implications for people who have dedicated so much of their life to it in the character of Beth. It's important to bring up that in the earliest drafts of Black Swan, the character who is now Beth, she had another name, I think. I think her name was Veronica in the early the earliest drafts. But essentially, she committed suicide off screen. That it was just kind of the plot device whereby an opening came up at the company for the new White Swan. That the original person had got older and had died. And now there's a, an opening up. And so it's interesting that the writers saw the potential in that character there and said, bring her back in, because that's actually an interesting psychological parallel with Nina, who's going to be inheriting that position to show that person on the opposite trajectory, on the downturn, where she's losing everything. She's no longer going to be able to dance anymore. She's no longer even interesting to Thomas anymore, because he's only interested in the here and now. He's only interested in the young beautiful and she's now older and it gives us this very important point of reference i think to watch beth's struggle and her deterioration yeah it's um it's good in reference for the the story as well because we um that adds to the stakes because now we see what happens to we saw what happened to beth and then as we get closer to the end of the film something similar starts happening to Nina in terms of like she begins to feel threatened that she's going to be replaced. So you have that theme of someone being so easily replaced. And because we've seen it already, I think it's a, it's already in our minds that it's something that could happen to, to Nina, especially the way that everything's kind of been going. And, you know, uh, Tomas hasn't really been quite favorable to her results as the black swan. And then, Obviously, we don't know whether Lily is real, whether she's after Nina or not. You know, I think that that line is blur a couple times, and I think that works in 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 the story because we're we're also kind of in the dark. We're kind of scared for Nina because we don't know if she's going to be replaced. I think another similar parallel that they included, and I really enjoy as well, is um the mother, Barbara Hershey's character, mm -hmm. how she is another older version of Nina. And yeah. something I heard Darren Aronofsky talk about was that many of the actors were chosen for their resemblance to Natalie Portman. But Barbara Hershey actually 
went a little bit beyond that and did her own makeup and started doing things in terms of the makeup she put on her eyebrows and her eyes to make her look even more like Natalie Portman. And I think she comes across as this really intriguing individual because you can just see in in her the way she carries herself that she's she's very self-assured and she's very confident and she she certainly feels like someone who has grown up in a very artistic but demanding world and one thing that comes across really well in the storyline is the fact that she resents Nina because she had to give up her career to have her. And that, I think, ties into those parallels with Nina's character. And it's it's a moral or it's a cautioning, I suppose, about the dangers as well of using the kind of sexual network that's underlying a lot of this in terms of there's these obvious suggestions that some of the ballerinas are mm. getting sexually involved with Thomas in order to get better roles. Mm-hmm. But her mother also stands as a very firm caution against that kind of path as well. Right. And I, I think it's a very important thing to include is to, to have these different older people for Nina to see the dangers approaching without actually us having to go down that route in terms of her character mm-hmm. we can just kind of see the warning signs in beth and in erica uh, i really like their complex relationship you know there's uh erica seems to be having a bit of a a love-hate thing with natalie's character with nina she cares about her but like you said you know she's got this resentment towards her as well and you can see that in the whole time that they're interacting, there's always this sort of tension between them that you just feel. It's a tribute to the, the actors doing a great job of portraying that on screen. In the draft that I read, she was very different. So Erica, uh, we don't even know that's her mom. Like she's revealed as her roommate. And and then we later get the revelation that it's her mom about like halfway through the script, which I thought was, which was odd. And they don't really have a relationship. It's almost like they, they don't get along. They know they don't get along. That's why we never think that it's her mom. And then until later on that she reveals that it is her mom. And then I guess we're meant to be asking like, okay, then what, why are they why are they acting that way then? And then later it's revealed that, you know, she has all these pictures of Nina in her room and that she actually has care this whole time, but she just acts like she doesn't. I'm so glad they evolved into this place that we're in now because it's so much more interesting to be living with both of those mindsets at once. You know, that you have to care for your daughter because she's your daughter, even though part of you, you know, there's this animosity almost between the two of them. That's kind of made worse by being covered up with with cute smiles or polite smiles to each other. And I think as, as us, the viewers, that's, more intriguing, I think, to 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 invest in in the story because then every scene feels sort of more um, dynamic because you don't know how it's going to end up. You know, there's moments where it seems like it's going okay and then like Nina says the wrong thing or her mom says the wrong thing and the other one just kind of explodes. So it's almost like this ticking time bomb mm-hmm. that you have in every scene and I think that's great for, for storytelling. Yeah, there's a strong attitude of codependence at times but also underlying resentments and and endless 
scarring that has gone on during the course of their relationship that, of course, doesn't need to be specifically laid out for us. We intuitively pick up on it by seeing how they interact with each other. And the way that it's written into the storyline is very careful, but it's important to show just how difficult it is for Nina to ever get any space. And even the night she goes out with Lily, it basically requires her to barge her way out of the house to to insist on going out because her mother answers the door and pretends that no one was there. And Mm. Nina has to go chasing out to see who it even was. The fact that she's so overbearing and overprotective that she won't even let her know that someone came to visit Mm. her we pick up on that uh, i think yeah and that's a that's a great uh thing to i guess kind of um spotlight right now because that's a great example of showing a character trait in a very effective way you know you don't have her saying like oh you're not going to see your friends these are my rules you're not seeing the character talk about how they are you're literally seeing the character in action being who they are so i think that's a much more effective way as a screenwriter to bring across uh, a character. So I think that, yeah, it's uh, that's very good writing right there too. Yeah, I, I really love that cattiness. And uh, there's the scene with the cake, I think, mm-hmm. is a brilliant, brilliant example of what you're talking about as well, where the mother is cutting off a slice of the cake and Nina says, not that much. And she picks it up and she's about to throw <laughs> the whole cake away. Yeah, very short it's just this yeah. overdramatic <laughs> reaction to everything. And you can just see that this this is not a stable environment yeah. for, for Nina to be in a lot of the time because of this constant overreaction. When we wonder about her sanity, we also wonder about how that relates to her mother. There's a lot of ambiguity in the screenplay, a lot of questions that we never get answered. But I feel that there's always that constant sense that something isn't right between the two of them. Yeah, it's a, it's a psychological warfare that's there throughout the whole film and until it finally reaches its climax that particular storyline with the mom which ends up with her mom locking her in the room one thing i'm very interested in is the fact that the mother represents some sort of godlike presence in her world a very judgmental figure it's beyond a lot of what goes on with nina and lily and the double in terms of this being the light and dark side of one's psychology. There's also the ego. There's always this judging, controlling element of the psychology as well, which I think is brought out in terms of the mother throughout the screenplay. Mm -hmm. But now I think we can talk a little bit about Lily and when they go out together and just, yeah, what we think about this character I think it was a very good move to not make her just simply a figment of Nina's imagination, to have this real character who is a threat, but only as much of a threat as any other girl in the ballet company. You know, they they all seem to be out for each other and to, to take the best role. But Lily obviously embodies so much of what Nina is missing. And arguably, there's a similar story going on with Lily at different points where she is lacking all of the things that Nina has that have elevated her status up to being the lead as well. But I think the screenplay is very ambiguous about that night out. You know, obviously the the first couple of times I saw this film, I thought, 
okay, so that scene, the, the famous sex scene between the two of them, that never happened. But this last time I watched it, I did wonder, maybe, you know, the only person we have to believe is is Lily on this, that Lily said she never went back there. She definitely got to rehearsal on time and started infiltrating and trying to take the, the lead role. But do you think it was entirely a figment of her imagination? That they spent the night together? Um, yeah. I do. I do take it like it was something that she imagined. Because, you know, they're in the club the last time we see them together. They're dancing. They're, they got the two guys to dance with them. And then I believe, you know, she's in the middle of dancing. And this is actually some, something that's uh, really great in terms of um, the film that it did. Was like, you know, you're in the dance floor and then it cuts to and she's in the bathroom and she's making out with some guy. But I just love that transition because it's almost like there's all these flashes of color and dance. And then all of a sudden it's just bright white light it's almost like she just wakes up in that moment like she was in this you know she's in the heat of uh, the moment and she's like you know obviously under the influence and it's at that moment that she finally like realizes what she's doing so she's back to herself um and then she takes off you know and then lily you know goes out the door and then they go together but i think at the point she leaves the bathroom i think that's when she she leaves i, I don't think she mm-hmm. she goes with anybody um this is kind of how i take it her just kind of fully embracing that side of herself yeah she finally embraces this this shadow side that everything she's been repressing she goes home she locks the door she uh, starts talking against her mom and exactly she starts saying all those things and there's a power to her in those scenes you know up to that moment we've seen very shy very reserved Nina, and in that scene, we see someone who's fully in control of herself, and she knows what she wants, and she knows what she doesn't want, and she lets her mom know what, where she's at. In that scene, obviously, it's uh, to go to the room with Lily, but it's, it's really just a metaphor of her fully coming into her power, I think. But, I mean, if they did, I mean, that's another great story, too. <laughs> like, either way, it works. Yeah, I mean, the fact that the later scene in which she supposedly stabs Lily turns out Mm. to have been a figment of her imagination certainly makes it seem as if well any other scene involving Lily could have been potentially a figment of her imagination I do have some thoughts about that but we'll we'll go into that once we get to those final uh, 10 minutes or so of her performance it it certainly seems from that point on everything's in motion The, the screenplay's done a great job up until that point to set up everything it needs to set up. We're talking about about the 70-page-in mark at this point where they go out together to the nightclub. So after that point, basically, we're getting into Act 3 territory. We want to start seeing some resolution to all of the storylines that have been set up early on. And we do get a bit of a resolution of what happens with Beth, for example, that she goes back to the hospital. There's almost something supernatural about it at that point where she's returning all of Beth's belongings that she had taken from her dressing room at the very start of the film. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of a resolution to the Thomas storyline by having Lily actually seduce him and him sleep with her instead of with Nina. So that kind of... At that point, we're aware of what her whatever her repressed sexuality was, it's not something to do with 
Tomas, it's actually that, you know, there's latent homosexuality there. There's there's something something else going on, I think, in terms of who she is as a sexual person as opposed to... Um, I don't think that would have fit in with the storyline if she had then gone and, and slept with Tomas, for example. And then I think that just basically leaves this last thing to be resolved, which is, can she embody the black swan in time for the performance? Yeah. Well, now that you mentioned something, something just came to me. Uh, when she goes back to the hospital and she visits Beth, and they have that very tense moment, um, and then she starts, Beth starts stabbing herself. And then, you know, she starts moving away, and then Beth turns around, and it's Nina's face. So this happens a mm-hmm. few times when she sees another character and sees her own face on that character's face. I feel like Beth represents her guilt, her her sort of shame in going for the role the way she did. Going back to the, the beginning, you know, she didn't think she was going to get the part because Tomah told her, I'm actually going to give it to... Actually, her name is Veronica, the other the other dancer. Uh, I guess you can call her the the mean one. And then the next day, or that same day, she goes into Tomas's office, dressed up, going to ask for the part. She's not really playing necessarily fair. You know, she's actually going straight up asking for the part. She feels this sort of like shame in a way that she was willing to do all these things to get ahead, including which was to potentially sexually uh, be with Tomas. You know, which is which is someone that meant a lot to to Beth. So I think she represents sort of her guilt. So I think each person in her life, these older women, for example, her mom or or Beth, represents like a sort of negative aspect of her psychology. You know, there's a guilt that's going on with her, and then then there's like the the pressure and the psychological warfare that she's had with her mom. This like need for control. But yeah, it's all kind of setting up for that final that final question of whether or not she's going to fully embody that role of the black swan. One other little parallel with the wrestler that I just have been thinking about as well is that I do think that they are two different sides. There's the masculine psychology in the wrestler and the female psychology in black swan. Uh But also the wrestler features this character Cassidy, who is a stripper portrayed by Marissa Tomei. And there's also that parallel there, I think, with the the two feminine worlds that there's this, the highest form of performing art is ballet on one side, and then there's the opposite side of that is the strip club, which is just the, obviously, the place most people don't want to end up. It's not the, it's, it's not what most people's ideal life is going to be, but there's also that sense that in that world as well, there's kind of more of an embracing of certain darker characteristics in some of the the characters and the people. Mm. And that Nina is completely shut down, completely ashamed of, of all of her sexuality and her, you know, the sexual potential of her body. And I think that does offer a nice, interesting contrast is to look at how a character like Cassidy is in The Wrestler. She's very much the opposite of, of Nina as well. Yeah, in, in a way. And um, yeah, she did She did a great job, Marissa Tomei, in that, in that character as well. She's, yeah, that is the opposite. She's completely comfortable in her sexuality because in that film, it's, it's pretty much her role. 
you know, we, we later discover that she has kid and she's actually not really like that. You know, I think with Nina, you know, even though she, it's interesting to, to see that she was going for a role that even herself, she hadn't proven to herself that she could do it. You know, there was mm-hmm. never a moment that she realized like, oh yeah, I just, I did that. I'm the black swan, which makes it all the more, I, I love when she finally does because you just see it. You just see that reveling in in that empowerment and and that, and that uh, feeling that she's got it, like she's there. You know, pretty much everything that we've been sort of seeing her struggle with, and even though she's, it, it, it's such a chaotic ending in a very beautiful way because you you know it kind of leads you to this this point of like you start you set up the chessboard and you're at the end and all this stuff goes starts going wrong but you know even though she's mentally having a a, a a pretty much a psychotic breakdown she's kind of like breaking down into this uh, extreme version of herself that we've been sort of prepared and waiting whether or not she was going to get to that point so it's a conflicting thing as an audience because on the one hand i remember when i was watching it it was like it was exhilarating to see her triumph but it was also very excruciating that she's suffering while she's doing it so it's almost like you don't know whether to keep rooting on for that or not uh because it's like she's doing both at the same time she's dying and exceeding at the same rate you know it's a very unique and very powerful uh ending to to a character in the storyline yeah one thing i want to talk about with the ending I've been writing my thoughts down in terms of writing short film reviews just for myself in order to keep in mind the things that I'm watching. And I wrote about The Wrestler this week. So I just kind of want to go back to what I wrote there. So I'm just pulling it up. With regards to the ending, Randy bounces around between the few options he feels are left, repairing his relationship with his daughter, attempting to find some gainful employment, taking one last shot at romance and companionship. All of these prospects turn out to be hollow. The film's answer is to transcend that in the only other way possible, through one final confrontation with immortality. And that final, final shot of The Wrestler, I think from this point on we should just say spoilers for The Wrestler. If you haven't seen it, you can maybe skip ahead uh, one minute or so in in the recording. But the final shot is also a jump. It's it's the ram up on the the corner. Do you call it a corner post in wrestling? It's I'm uh, not sure, but it is a corner post. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it's the ram up on that corner post, and the camera lingers with him, and it, we already have all of that context that this is potentially an action that could kill him, and he's going to choose to do it anyway. And it's this jump into oblivion. It's this jump into potentially the last moment of his life and also whatever that could be some sort of transcendence into immortality into into heaven or hell or whatever it's going to be he's ready for it yeah and it's very very interesting that black swan takes such a similar approach to its ending with a jump it's this leap of faith as well we know that there's a a mattress down there that she's going to fall on that should be fine is the fact she's already been stabbed and is bleeding out that we also can make that comparison that this could be a leap of death as well. 
But I think as we discussed a little bit earlier on, this leap is also a leap into adulthood. Potentially, this is just the death of her inner child and a leap into adulthood and the role she is going to assume and embody from this point forward is she's going to be the lead ballerina at this obviously very prestigious the main dance company in new york city so going back to the wrestler for a second uh, that ending when he does jump and you're just holding on to that shot but you're what i found so brilliant was that you don't follow him you know he goes off screen and you're left there with the location in which he made that choice. He took that moment. I thought that was such a great way. And in terms for Nina, like the more you, the more like we talk about it, the more you've been describing it, the, you know, her ending, her leap of faith, her jumping, uh, not knowing whether she's going to live or die. Like, I feel like that is the stage could be that metaphor for exactly what you were saying is like her going into womanhood and saying goodbye to her, her innocence, saying goodbye to her childhood. You know, who's out in the audience? It's her mom, it's her mentor, her peers. Pretty much everyone that had a part in her childhood is there to, she's there to say goodbye to all of it. And, you know, she's at that precipice Mm -hmm. and it's cost her all this anguish, but she's done it. She's at the top and then she jumps. I feel like metaphorically, it's such an uplifting story. (laughs) If you just like look at it Mm -hmm. that way, it's a beautiful metaphorical story of like just saying goodbye to your childhood and and becoming an adult, becoming a woman. And also the psychological tension, this this constant harassment by the double, by the constant paranoia and strange things that keep occurring in her world, all of that calms down by the final moment mm-hmm. because she's been through it. She's been through the gauntlet and come out the other side at this point. And when making parallels to psychology, I think this is the moment of that integration. She has finally got to that point where she can integrate all of these these things that have been psychologically tormenting her all the way through. She could just never bear to be fully herself. And then at this moment, it's finally integrated. It's been painful. It's, it's like the ultimate injury of all the different injuries she's endured throughout the film that we had been watching, this is the one that is most painful and she's removing that shard from from her stomach. Mm-hmm. But it's there, I think, that finally she has found a way to allow these two things to coexist and stop haunting her. The film doesn't give us answers about ex- exactly what really happened with Beth, for example, or what really happened with Lily. What we do know is probably she hasn't killed anyone, and it's just this was a psychological journey she went on. Yeah, I, I never, I never thought of her as actually having killed anyone. I think when I saw the movie the first time, the only time I thought that she murdered someone was at the end, uh, but accidentally, you know, to Lily. You know, it's almost like uh, she thought she was stabbing herself, or in this heightened state of mind, she accidentally did that, but. Obviously, she didn't. So I don't think uh, she did anything to, like, best either. I don't think nothing happened there. I think, um, yeah, these are all just parts of herself that were just dying, that she was killing herself. Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is a really, really interesting one to analyze from that psychological perspective. Mm-hmm. 
it does have a lot of points of comparison to The Wrestler, but I do feel that The Wrestler is very much a film that is grounded fully in reality, and this one does have things that are psychologically unsettling, things that do not make sense. They feel like hallucinations. And therefore, that opens it up to us, I think, in terms of us having to find the symbolism and find the meaning that is hidden within the stuff that we actually see happen on screen. And there's obviously so much you can delve into in a screenplay like this. But ultimately, what I'm taking away from this in terms of tips or instruction in terms of writing is that I don't think this screenplay is too crowded. I think that there are so many character details included in this and it doesn't feel overwhelming when it works as a as a film. But also in order to do that, I think it's important to have a few characters. This film really has about five main characters and I think that is kind of a good amount when you're doing a character study. I don't think you should really go beyond that into the dozens. The smaller cast of characters therefore embodies a lot more in terms of the story that you're telling. So the mother tells you so much about her past and her upbringing. Beth tells you so much about what she's afraid her future will become. Lily tells you so much about what she is lacking in her own self-expression at this point in her life. With those limited characters, you can actually tell a very far-ranging story. I think it's very effective to have uh, very few characters if you are doing a character piece on just one, you know, because it's not really an ensemble piece. You have all these very well-developed characters, but they're very much there to show the different sides of Nina, to show different um, challenges that reveals her character, that shows her desires, that shows her weaknesses. It's all there to kind of give us a full... Uh, spectrum into the life of this character of Nina Sayers. I think she's at the center of it and every character is used perfectly to reveal a, a different aspect of her psychology. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it's too much and the, the script that I read, it, it did feel a little overstuffed in the beginning because they spend a lot of time, it spends a lot of time in the, in the world of the ballerinas in, in terms of Beth and her relationship with with Nina and Veronica, there's a lot more going on with Veronica and Nina in the script than there is in the in the film or in the final draft. But I think what it does by cutting them a little bit is that we're more centered on Nina's perception of what they think of her. Because in 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 the in the draft that I read, there's a lot of conversations between all those characters, and in the film, there's not that many conversations and instead what we get are these very powerful moments of Nina sort of analyzing what they might be thinking and in relation to her so it's more true to her character and we're kind of more on her lens than we are in sort of like a more bigger picture because we never leave her like we're Nina is almost like in every shot you know this is all from her perspective and it's psychological in that way and then you mentioned something that was very interesting and the wrestler which is very similar um, he's in every scene, but that story is very much grounded in reality. It's not a psychological drama of any kind, um, but nonetheless, you're you're. It's very similar in sort of what they have to do, but the experience of it, it's almost like different genres. You know, the wrestler is more of a 
I guess you would call it like a drama, mm. more of a typical drama. And, you know, Black Swan is kind of this really cool hybrid of like, you know, horror and there's got you know elements of horror, elements of drama, uh, you know, all these little ingredients. So I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see kind of how you can tell very similar stories in different structures, different genres as well. Well, I think that's, that's a very good note to end it on. I think we've done a decent attempt at analyzing Black Swan. Yeah. It's it's a very complicated film, but I really enjoyed reading this one. So coming up, we're going to be talking about Children of Men next. Yeah, and yeah. that's going to be very good for the time we're in. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Um, I haven't seen that movie in a while, so I'm excited. Yeah, the book is is a very interesting meditation on what it means for a society to believe it's not really got a future on the horizon, which is very interesting. That's it for us talking about Black Swan for, for this week, and we'll be back next week with our much-reduced release schedule coming up. Uh, yeah, thank you guys for listening, and if there's a like you know a difference in audio quality than normal, it's because... We're Skyping together, and uh, it's a, a reflection of where we're at. Uh, you might hear a baby crying in the background or whatnot, but uh, yes. Good little time capsule. <laughs>